0: a lot of time. I think I can go about an hour today. Everybody up for it? Everybody up for it? All right, we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that may be foreign to you in terms of what does that mean and how does that work, and we're going to try to walk you through uh, a number of scriptures to kind of lay a framework. One of the things that I really like to do is I like to take the Bible in one hand and what's happening in news reports in the other And read those simultaneously and see if we can ascertain what's going on in the world in light of biblical revelation. Now it's amazing because the times we live are really unique. They're unlike other times because we're living in really what I believe the prophetic last days. Now here's why I say that. I say it because of the founding of the nation of Israel in 1948 a prophetic clock began to tick. For a long time, over 2,500 years, we were waiting for that fulfillment of that prophecy that Israel would be regathered in their land, that they would establish a homeland for the Jews. They'd been scattered since the invasion of Babylon in 604 B.C., and they have not had a homeland since that time. So when you take that uh, 2,500-year span of time and realize biblical prophecy pointed to that and we're living in that day, so we go back to 1948 and we say the prophetic clock began to tick. And what have we seen since then that also amplifies and helps to illustrate what's going on in prophecy? Well, we see a fulfillment of the regathering of people to that homeland. So, for example, in Zechariah, the prophet told us that he would regather people from Ethiopia. Beginning in 1972, began an airlift, the Solomon airlift, where they began to literally take people of Jewish origin from Ethiopia and bring them into the land of Israel. That happened on three different waves in order to fulfill that that regathering of Israel. Then we saw, in the 70s, we saw Russia release the borders so that all the Jews could leave. They basically said, we don't want you here, we'd rather have you in your homeland. So they began to migrate in. And we've seen this worldwide migration that is fulfillment of a number of scriptures, even going back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God begins to promise these kind of things would begin to happen. So when we say that we're living in latter-day prophetic fulfillment, we're not just saying something that another generation could have said prior to 1948. We're saying something based on good, uh, solid, biblical fulfillment of prophecy in the Word of God. Now, what that means is we're living in some pretty exciting times. Not only that, but we're seeing an alliance between Russia and Iran that's very unique. It hasn't happened prior to this time. It really began with a really crazy ruler named Ahmadinejad, and we kind of call him I'm a mad job, but whatever. Um, But he came and he began to forge this alliance with Russia. Now, A lot of people don't know the ancient name for uh, Iran was Persia, and it was changed at the request, at the urging of a German ambassador. So the word Iran literally means Aryans, because they're non-Arabs. They consider themselves an Aryan nation. That's why the best-selling book in Iran today is Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. So we see some interesting dynamics that are going on. This alliance between Russia and Iran is unique because it points you back to the book of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it talks about an alliance that will come in the last days that will come against the nation of Israel. We're seeing that with them and other ancient names like Tagarma, Turkey, Gomer, Germany. We're seeing those alliances that are coming together, and we're on, I believe, the doorstep of the next big prophetic moment. Now, I want to take you to a couple of headlines that I just pulled off of the internet just recently recently. Now, here's the first one. It's found in the U.S. News and World Report. It was April 10th. So it's a couple of, about a month or so old. And it says the Israeli Institute prepares priests for Jerusalem's third temple. Now, Christian News didn't report that. That was reported by U.S. News and World Report. Now, what we know about prophecy is when the Antichrist comes, he will institute. Or, or find himself dovetailed into this institute of worship in a temple. There has to be a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The problem is there is a Muslim mosque on the site, which poses a problem, unless Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the fulfillment of the next prophetic movement, which I believe it is, because it says an earthquake will come that will be so severe in Jerusalem that every wall will fall. Every wall means that what holds up now, that, that mosque, will collapse, and there will be a whole new uh, building process that will begin and open the door for a Jewish temple. Well, when they say they're preparing, what does that mean? That means they are training priests to serve in a new temple. That also means they have literally constructed almost every piece of furniture and utensil that goes in that future temple. It's already done. It's just waiting the right time. Here's the next uh, piece of news I saw. Israeli ambassador moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. This was in the Washington Free Beacon, June 5th. Now, right now, our embassy in Israel is in Tel Aviv because they have refused to recognize Jerusalem as the capital. It's a little politically hot, if you haven't noticed. And it's also especially hot right now because under the current administration, there is probably the least support for the nation of Israel there has ever been. But what this means is the ambassador is saying, we want to get that embassy, that U.S. embassy moved and recognize the proper capital, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. It is the place where David began that process completed by Solomon, the building of the temple. Jerusalem is the place where our Lord was crucified, rose from the dead. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus Christ will return in all of his glory in his second coming. When they make this move, it is a formal recognition by our government saying, we recognize Jerusalem to be your capital. Now, Israel already calls it their capital. It's just we want you to recognize it as the capital. Let me take you to another news uh, piece. Palestinians form new unity government that includes Hamas. Now, what's interesting about this, current administration is supporting this move, but we've also got a problem. The problem is we've classified Hamas as a terrorist organization. So now we're saying we support this new government, therefore we are supporting a terrorist organization to rule over this two-part system or this two-state system in the Middle East. Now, you can see there's a convulgence of, uh, convergence of, of all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of warring opportunities, right? Well, isn't it interesting, a little bitty piece of dirt? I mean, really, it is a speck. Israel makes up less than 1% of... Of all the land in the Middle East. And yet that's too much from a Palestinian, from an Arab perspective, for the Jews. One percent, less than one percent. What's going on? Well, I don't know about you, but when I see all this happening in the news and I read my Bible and I see all this happening in the in in my in the word of God, I say, God must be trying to show us something or tell us something. Let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Matthew, chapter 24, and uh, I hope you'll follow along with me as, you, as we read. We'll have it on the screens, but it's also great to either pull it up on your iPad, on your phone, or, or uh, actually bring a Bible. It's, uh, it's, it's a novel idea, right? <laughs> Bible, church, God, I don't know, it kind of goes together. Okay, now here's the scene. Matthew's chapter 24, Jesus has got the disciples gathered around him. They know something's up. They know the end of the world he's been talking about. He's been talking about his own death. And they want to know something about the end of the world. So look what it says in verse 3. Now he said on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, that's pretty clear. They want to know two things. They want to know when and what. When are you coming back? Because we got it now. You're going to die. They must have believed in the resurrection because they said, and you're coming back. So when and what become the issues? And what is going to be that sign? How are we going to know when you come? Is there going to be anything that will tell us in advance, any way we can get ready, or is it just going to be totally unexpected? And not only your coming, but the end of the age. So in other words, we want to know when are you coming back, and when will this age that we live in, this time period that we're working in right now, when is that going to come to an end as well? Now let's go down a little bit further, and I would just encourage you, by the way, to read the whole 24th chapter, but for sake of time, we're just going to jump ahead a little bit. Go to verse 29. Now, in between, uh, prior to his second coming, we have what's called the tribulation. And the tribulation is a period of seven years on earth where the Antichrist is basically free to rule over all of mankind. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, what he's doing here, he's bringing them back to Joel chapter 2 at verse 10. Joel prophesied this, and he says, you remember what Joel said? This is that. This is what is going to happen in those days, all right? Go on with me. Verse 30, then the sign. Now, here, see the answer? This is the answer to verse 3. By the way, if you read enough of the Bible, it will answer itself. You just have to keep reading it. You know, a lot of times what we do is we read something, we get confused and go, I don't know what that means. We go out, we buy a book, we go online, we try to find an answer. Any, we'll do anything to keep from reading the Bible. You know, and then we think our problem is we need a new translation. So we go to the local bookstore, we buy a new translation, and we go, yeah, you know, it doesn't really help if I don't read it anyway. The average Christian has 6.3 translations of the Bible and doesn't read any of them. Let me tell you something. When you read the Word of God and you keep reading it, what you're going to do is you're going to find the Holy Spirit will show you a divine pattern in Scripture. He'll point you in directions. He'll answer questions that he poses earlier in in another book or another chapter. So here he tells us clearly in verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see... The Son of Man coming in chariots of heaven with power and great glory. Now why do they mourn? Why what's going on here? Well remember, this is during a tribulation period, Christians have been taken out of the earth in something called the rapture. And so what's going on here is they're left on earth and they see the sign of the Son of Man. They see him in the air, every eye will see him, the Bible says. By the way, Never would have been possible, except in our day of technology, for to see one event worldwide, Christ returns, the entire world sees it, they will see it, they will begin to mourn, they'll go, oh no, it's true. Oh no, this is really happening. You ever had one of those moments? Have Ever had one of those moments where you're driving in your car, you're going a little fast, and you see the policeman, and you have that, oh no, did he see me, Right? You ever had that? I mean, it's amazing what it does to you. Your heart begins to beat, you know, and you begin to look for the quickest exit, pull over, change a tire, do anything, anything. You know, I don't want to get a ticket, right? It's just like horrible. It's a, you know, to me, getting the ticket, going to court or whatever is the least of it. It's when he looks at me and he goes, you know how fast you're going? And you know, I'm kind of a smart aleck. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but there's always something smart in me wants to go. Well, don't you know? Because if you don't know, I think we're good, <laughs> right? I mean, are we okay? Can we just kind of move on? Because if you don't know, I don't know. We'll just call it, you know, no, no, no contest, right? Think about this. Think if you spurned and rejected Christ your whole life. And all of a sudden, the sign of the Son of God appears in the heavens and you have that, oh, no moment, that mourning that comes to your very soul and says, I was wrong about my perspective on God. Well, go on with me a little bit here. It says that then they will see the sign, verse 30, of the, uh, in, the, in the heaven, and then all the tribes of earth were mourned when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. Now drop down to verse 36. But of that day and hour, of that day and of that hour, no one knows. Okay, the exact day and the exact hour, nobody can tell you. But that doesn't mean that you can't read the signs of the period of time we're living in. And that's what we're trying to say. We will never give you a date for the return of Christ. Some people like to do that. Some people like to write books and sell them. And you're going to go out and buy him because you go, this guy knows. He was just brilliant. He figured it out. The only thing he didn't figure out was Matthew 24 where it says, no man knows the hour of the day. (laughs) Other than that, he was a brilliant guy, right? So here's what I want you to do. If somebody tells you a day and an hour, you reject them immediately. But that doesn't mean you can't read the times and the seasons that we're living in. We're living in some pretty interesting times, all right? Um, and, you know, it always brings an emotional thing. My, you know, my, every time I preach one of these messages, my daughter calls me and she says, Daddy, am I gonna, is he going to wait long enough for me to have children? Right? But you know what that is? That's the human side of us, right? There's also a human side of us that says, hey, I just want to be positive. I don't even want to think about this stuff, right? Am I right? You know what I'm talking about? Hey, this is positive. This is a fulfillment of all God had promised us thousands of years ago. This was God's divine plan for mankind. Now, we may not understand all the details of it, but this is what God did. This is not what, you know, gee, well, let's just ignore a couple of chapters and a couple of books of the Bible so we don't ever have to be confronted with the reality of the return of Jesus Christ. That's not, not really, doesn't make sense, does it? Well, let's go on and read a little bit. It says, no man knows the hour or the day, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Now watch this. But as the days of Noah were. Okay, how can we know the days we're living in? It says there on the scriptures, look what it says. As the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So how am I gonna read my days? I'm gonna say, what was going on in Noah's day? Well, there was worldwide rejection of Christ, right? There was a godly remnant. Noah, Mrs. Noah, the three boys and their sons, right, and their wives. And, and you know, see, outside of that, that was it. There was widespread rebellion against God, against God's authority. There was rampant, uh, 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 just a violation of a moral code altogether. It sounds a little bit like our day, doesn't it? Maybe we're not there yet. Maybe it's 100 years, maybe it's one year, maybe it's a 1,000 years. I don't know. But I do know that there's some signs and things that are pointing us. But as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 38, for, for as in the days before the flood they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man." All right. Now, I want you to think about Noah's Ark. Got it? Everybody got a Noah's Ark picture in your head? Okay, if you ever went to Sunday school, you ever went there as a child, there was always a little Noah's Ark. Remember it? And you've got like all these windows along the side. It looks like a nice ocean liner, and you've got a giraffe sticking its head out. You know, it's kind of checking out the rain. You know, you've got the snake, it's up, it's checking it out. Everybody's just kind of cool. It's like on, it's kind of like an old uh, version of some, you know, luxury liner. Well, it's not what it was like. It was basically a big box. It only had one window in it, and it was in the top. And it was there because God wanted Noah to keep his eye on God and not on the circumstances. There was only one door into that ark. Just like there's only one door into heaven, only one way into salvation, there's only one way to find Christ and to be saved. And when Noah went into the ark, it wasn't God telling Noah to go into the ark, it says Noah, come into the ark. God was in the ark. When he was building it, God told Noah to cover it with pitch. And the word that he used there for cover is the Hebrew word kapar, and it literally means atonement. The atonement of your sins means your sins are covered, they're forgiven. When that ark was a picture of salvation, that we enter into salvation, we're sealed by the Spirit of God. Until the day of salvation, God shut the door and sealed the door shut, and that ark for 40 days and 40 nights went up and down and around and around during the tribulation and the trials of that moment, and it wasn't opened until the time was right. And I want you to know that when you enter into salvation, into relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like entering into that one door. God seals it shut. You're safe. You're secure. Hey, you may go up and down and around and around. Life's not always easy, is it? but you're safe and secure. Jesus was in the boat, remember, with the disciples, and there was a great storm, and they're waking him up and going, how can you sleep in a moment like this? And, you know, the, the right answer would have been, I'm God. God can sleep in a storm. How can you sleep like this? You know, and he gets up, looks around, you know, gets the sleepy out of his eye and goes, uh, waves and wind, be still. And, and then it says they were very afraid. They were afraid of the storm and the wind before, but then when they found out God was in their boat, they were very afraid. When you get God in your boat, it gets a little scary, right? Okay, now let's take what what Jesus said in Matthew. Now let's just jump ahead a little bit to Revelation. A lot of scripture here, but you've got to have the whole picture to see what's going on. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, look what it says. Now I saw heaven opened. John has this vision from God. John has been elevated in Revelation 4 to look at earth from earthly perspective, and he sees now heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God of God you remember the word of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us remember that John chapter 1 verse 1 John chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and full of truth remember the word the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow discerning the true intentions of the heart remember the word this is the word The word has come and the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword this is this is language that says the word is going to be the judge the word is going to be the judge of us you know have you ever read the the bible and you go oh man am i in trouble you ever had those moments when I first read the Bible, and, and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know much about church. I just kind of went because I had to. You know, my parents drug me along, and then I started reading the Bible, and I go, wow, I'm in trouble, right? Because I've done all that stuff a couple of times, right? I won't tell you which one. You know, all the stuff you're not supposed to do. And you know what the Word of God did? It, it kind of felt like a razor going in my heart. And it was, it was painful, but it was a good pain. You ever had a good pain? There are good pains in our life. And, and so that razor is kind of separating things out. And what it does is it reveals what's really going on in me on the inside. And it brings comfort. It brings healing. It brings correction. It brings training and righteousness, the Scripture says. It does all those things. And it says here, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread upon the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe he, and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know he's coming back for? His church. Coming back for you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry if you, don't, if you know Christ. You know what you are? You're special to Him. You're, you're called a royal diadem in the hand of God. Imagine if you had a, a priceless gemstone that was the size of your hand, and it was perfectly cut, and you held it in your hand, and you turned it this way, and you turned it that way, and you saw every reflection of every piece of glory in it. You know what God does? He holds you in His hand, and you reflect His glory. I posted something on Facebook this week. I want to just read it, and I want you to think about you as being the princess of God. Listen to this. My princess, you don't have to fit in. You see, the church doesn't have to fit in. We have to be the church. We have to be strong. We have to be mighty in the name of God Almighty. I know you want to be accepted by others. But you were not made to fit in. You, my princess, were created to stand out. Not to draw attention to yourself, but to live the kind of life that leads others to me. Remember, it's your choices that will pave your path to life. I will not force you to do anything. I have given you free will to walk with me or to walk away from me. I want you to know that you can put on your crown at any time and let people know that you belong to me. You have a royal call on your life. I don't want you to remember that you wear a crown of everlasting life. And through you, I will do abundantly more than you could ever, ever dream or dare. Love your king and the crown giver. valuable you get to put on the crown and say I am a child of God's and God gives you the free will to to deny him and he still loves you isn't that amazing and he reminds you that you weren't ever made to fit in you're not of this world you're not supposed to be like everybody else you're supposed to be divinely different that doesn't mean divinely stupid you know what I mean We we need to be supernaturally natural so that we flow in the Spirit of God and we're real and we're, we're vibrant in our faith and we're living out this thing because heaven opens at God's commands. When you call upon God, God can open up the heavens for you, right? When you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as where? As it already is in heaven. God opens up his heavens for you, his child, and God has... Has this uh, law of unlimited supply. Let me give it to you. God is the God of infinite capacity. I want you to think right now what is it you need? What is it you really need? Not want, what do you really need? I see stuff I really want all the time. How about you? I see new cars, you know, all kinds of cool watches, all kinds of stuff. And I just go, yeah, I, I really need that. And then, then the Spirit of God will go, do you really need that or do you really want that? I really want that, God, is it okay, huh, 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 God, huh? I mean, I'm just like a, a fifth grader sometimes, you know, talking to God. God, can I have it, can I have it, can I have it? And he goes, yeah, you can have that, but you can't have that. But what do you really need? What do you really need? If you could say, I need this, what would you say? You'd say, I need Love? I need life I need hope what would you write down what's going through your head right now that you really need well God is a God of infinite capacity also God is a God of increase have you ever noticed that when God gives you something to plant it always reproduces and multiplies it never just kind of reproduces itself one-on-one He gives you a little kernel of corn. He says, plant that corn in the ground, and you're going to have a season. You're going to have a big festival. You're going to have something come forth that's going to multiply. You're going to have a harvest. So you put that one little seed in there, and and the average corn gets two stalks on it. Some of them get three. And on the average ear, they get 100 kernels. So that means it's a 2,000 to 1 return from God. God is a God of increase, and God is a God of abundance. God wants to bless you. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Wouldn't you like to have something in abundance? You just have too much of it, just too much of it. When we were first married, we were pretty poor, and um, we had a friend that had a a company, and we got those Roman noodles. You know those things, the cup cup of thing, right? And we got like 20 cases of them. And we were eating them all the time. I said, I can't do it anymore, you know. And, you know, they're so salty. They're full of salt. You know, you can't get a ring on for a month after you eat one cup of those, you know. But, but, you know, we had an abundance of them, right? It was abundance. Why? Because we had a friend that owned the, the company, and he was supplying us Roman noodles. What if what you really needed, you had in such great supply that it was abundance? You know, that's what God does. You know why God gives you abundance? So you can give it away. So you can sow it, so you can reap it, so you can sow it, so you can reap it, you can sow it, you can reap it. You say, right now, I just feel so loved by God, then give it away. Give it away. Give some of that love away to people. Let them experience what you experience. You say, well, I feel a little short on love, then give what you have away, and God will give you more. You give out of your poverty, you give out of your hurt, you give out of your pain, and you see what God can do. God can do some amazing things. We had the marriage uh, conference this week, and uh, this weekend we told you a little bit about that. But I think the most amazing thing is to watch people from a leader's perspective. And there was one exercise where we had uh, the men and the women stand and face each other and not say a word, and what they had to do was communicate through the eyes the pain that you had caused your spouse. Let me tell you, it's the most powerful exercise you've ever seen. And those of us who were leading, we knew what the result was going to be. We knew there was going to be tears dropping, right? So we had boxes of Kleenex. So we're walking around, and some people would look at us when we hand them the box of Kleenex like, what's that for? Trust me, you're going to need this. But when you see this dynamic of relationship just start to gel, and people start to transform. People start to, to see how how life and how relationships are supposed to work. There's something emotional that happens inside. Here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to imagine that you're standing eye to eye to Jesus. You're looking him in his eyes and he's not saying a word. He's not condemning. He's not not trying to point out any faults. He's not doing that at all. And I want you to imagine right now you're looking into his eyes and he says to you, I want you to look in your eyes and I want you to think about all the pain that you've caused me. When you denied me, you didn't love me. You didn't really support me in my efforts. There's something really powerful about that, that exercise. Because sometimes we go so fast to just saying, well, I know God loves me and I know I'm going to heaven and we wash everything else away. Do you ever think about the God who gave you emotions as emotional? It says that God weeps. When God's tears run down his face, so to speak, why do they run down his face? It's for his children. It's just like you do for your children because you're brokenhearted for them. God says, I want to give you abundance. Now, God, now, Jesus, now I want you to look into my eyes and I want you to see my abundance that I have for you. It's all for you. I didn't create this world for me. I created it for you. I sent Jesus to die for you. It's all for you. In this scripture, we see that, that the word of God is revealed clearly in scripture. What does he reveal? I was spend thinking about this thing of honor and how that we need to develop a, a culture of honor, honoring one another. And I want to give you an illustration here. It's kind of, a, kind of a humorous illustration, but if you have, anybody ever have a junk car parked at somebody's house in your neighborhood? Ever had that experience? My son bought an old Scout and then painted it with a roller Painted green, dark green, it was was like the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. And we lived in a pretty nice community at the time, and the guy across the street did not appreciate it, but there was nothing he could do because it had a license plate, you know, it ran, it did all the right things, it was just super ugly. It was an eyesore. I thought it was an eyesore, right? But I kind of liked leaving it there because the guy across the street didn't like it, and so I kind of felt good about it. You know what I mean? You ever have those moments where you're kind of human? You know, you want to act like a spiritual Christian all the time, but I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't like it, you know. Yeah, it's fine there, Jeremy. Don't worry about it. Just leave it right there and maybe move it forward and backward every every other day, you know. Okay, so if you have a car that's a junker, it's an eyesore. But if you put a fence around it, now it's called a junkyard. And it goes up in value. Because now somebody wants to come over there and take a part off of it, right? I'll buy that fender, I'll buy that light. Now it becomes a revenue stream, right? And then if you want to up the value one more level, what do you do? You put walls around it and you call it a garage. Because we've all driven junkers, right? We've all driven eyesores somewhere in our lifetime. What made the difference? What made the difference was the boundaries you established around those things here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about honoring you. Some of you need to establish boundaries in your life because you're more valuable than you think you are. And what you've done is you've allowed people to diminish your worth, to devalue you. Maybe you've been told some things all through life and, and, and you believed him. You bought into him. I want you to just right now begin to establish some boundaries in your life and up the value and up the worth because guess what? God wants you to honor you. God also wants you to honor others. When we begin to think about this matter of honor, it really began to, to, to hit me that we can increase in honor constantly. You know, when you, when you remember somebody's name, you honor them. When you say hi to somebody, you honor them. When you're getting ready to merge into the highway and you let somebody go ahead of you, what are you doing? You're honoring them, aren't you? What would happen if we as a church would say, we're gonna take the level of honor up and up and up for one another and for the kingdom and for God? What would that look like? Let me tell you one of the ways that I think it would look. I think we would honor the time of worship we have together. You know what that means? I think when we develop a culture of honor we get here on time. I wanted to wait till everybody was in here so I wouldn't know who came in late. But we don't start at 10.15. We start at 10. And you know why? Why we get here on time? Because we have a culture of honor. I want to honor you. I want to honor you. There's also something about this culture of, of kind of making our life to say, I'm going to be in the house of God every Sunday unless I absolutely cannot be. Let me give you a scripture Isaiah 58 verses 13 and 14 if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord and shall honor him not doing your own ways nor finding your own pleasure or speaking your own words then you will delight yourself in the Lord you see what it said you can't delight yourself in God until you honor God on his day isn't that interesting I never saw that connection until I saw it in Isaiah. There's also this honor of possessions, the time of possessions. In Proverbs 3.9, it says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. There's something really powerful that happens when I write out a check or or I, I click my online donation. You know what it is? I honor God. I can find a lot of ways to spend that money. Everybody can but I say, I want to honor God. Honor comes when I exalt the returning Lamb of God. Revelation five twelve. listen to this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Would you we all agree with that? If you believe in Christ, you believe in that. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all then I heard them say blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne honor the lamb because the time of God's restoration is at hand you know what God wants to do he wants to restore all things back to us and God has spoken throughout scripture let me give you some life applications just to kind of bring those to bear in your heart here's the first one the times point to the return of Christ what will you do with that we say, what do I do? I, you live for Christ. You talk about his name. The other life application, increase the level of your commitment. Say, where, where am I at on my commitment? I just want to go up another level. That's what I want to do. Wherever I am, I'm going to go up here. And then determine to honor God in everything you do. Just honor God. I'm, God, I'm just going to honor you. I'm going to honor one another. You get to try it out when you go today. You know what you do? You go up to somebody and say, hey, I'd like to meet you. What's your name? What's your name? I've been calling you brother, hey you, for a long time. And I confess there's a lot of names I don't know. Be patient. You know, sometimes I, I, I have a great memory, but it's really short. You know what I mean? Like one guy said, I got a photographic memory, but I'm out of film. I'm, all right? But, but, you know, it is. Just take the effort. I should know your name by now, but would you tell me one more time, and for the next five weeks, would you tell me your name? I think I can get it. See, honor says, hey, you know, you're trying. If you're in the game, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm there. Honor the Lord. We're going to take communion here in a minute, and uh, we're going to let you honor the Lord through the breaking of bread and through uh, the cup. Jesus gave this, and he said, when you do this, you do this in memory of me. Because I died on the cross for you. We're also going to give you time to honor just the the concept of prayer and faith. And at the cross, you can take a prayer request. There will be a prayer team there to pray with you, or you can just simply walk up and put a prayer prayer request on that cross and, and be assured that we will be praying those prayers throughout the week. We're also going to sing that Revelation song here in just a moment. And as we sing that, and you want to come here to the front and just honor the Lord and just worship Him, you can do that too. But let's stand together as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we pray, we ask God that you would just receive our honor, God. We want to honor one another. We want to honor you in all that we do. God, we want to honor the worship. We want to honor the day. We want to honor the time. We want to honor you through our possessions, through our dedication, our commitment. God, we want to honor one another. We want to be able to look every man and every woman, every boy and girl in the eye, and just honor them because they are created in the image of Almighty God. And God, as we share in this time of communion, we do it because we honor, we honor you, God. We know there's coming, a return of Christ. We don't know when that is, God, but in that in-between time, we want to honor you. We want to honor the Word and tell people about Jesus and invite them to be here with us to fellowship in Christ. So God, as we honor you now, we just pray, God, for just the release of your... Uh, of the freedom of people to move to a communion table that are located in all four corners, to move here to the stage or to the cross. And let's just worship the Lord in His greatness and in His glory. Amen.